a few nights ago, I talked about uh, the five aggregates, particularly in relation to the emptiness of the material world, or what's called form. And talked about how the Buddha said that form was like a mass of foam, empty and insubstantial. And that refers to this whole physical world that we inhabit. And that our use of language can reflect this understanding if we talk about appearances rather than objects. We get in touch with that insubstantiality. Tonight I wanted to talk a little more about the five aggregates and particularly in relation to what Sylvia talked about last night called the three characteristics, the qualities of everything that arises of being impermanent, of being unsatisfactory or incapable of giving lasting happiness, and as not having a self. The fundamental question really in practice, the fundamental uh, thing we're trying to solve or see into is the question of what am I? Who am I? What is a human being? What is this thing that we experience that we call life? This question has obviously preoccupied people from the time of the Buddha and before And there are these lovely stories, uh, Gil read one about uh, the nuns who were practicing and the accounts of their deliverance, the accounts of their struggles. And I wanted to read one other nun story tonight. If you remember in the one that he read in a talk early in the retreat, the nun was visited by Mara. And in the Buddhist mythology, Mara sort of personifies the difficult forces of the mind, you might say the hindrances. But actually, the way you hear Mara described in the old texts, it seems that people truly regarded Mara as a being, a being on some other level that would come and visit people. So actually, you can understand this being of Mara in two ways. One is just a kind of mythological archetype. The other is as an actual being. And I don't know which is true, but it's a really interesting uh, figure in all the Buddhist texts. So the nun uh, Vajira, a nun of some understanding, as will be apparent from the dialogue, had uh, taken her uh, alms bowl and entered Savati, a town in northern India, for alms, and came back to this grove that she was staying in. And after her meal, she sat down at the foot of a tree and began to meditate. It's Then it said that Mara approached the bhikkhuni and desired to cause her fear and consternation, to make her hair stand on end and cause her to fall away from concentration of mind. Have you had any visits from Mara like that so far? That sounds kind of familiar. So Mara came to the bhikkhuni, Vajira, and put to her this question that was intended to unsettle her. Who put this living being together? Where is the maker? Where does this being come from, and where will it end? So Vajira, being a pretty together meditator, replied immediately, What's this being you go on about? That's your delusion. We are nothing but the aggregates. There's no being to be found here. It's like this. A certain combination of parts is called by the name chariot. 
so with the aggregates, the elements of mind and body. It's just common usage to say a being. It's suffering that exists, suffering that endures, suffering that disappears. Nothing but suffering exists, nothing but suffering comes to an end. Then Mara, the evil one, thought, Vajira knows me. And sad and dejected, he slunk away. So this is a very interesting reply from Vajira when she says, there is no being here, that's only a concept. What's really here are the aggregates. This response takes us into a level that in the Buddhist text is talked of as the level of ultimate truth and conventional truth. Gill talked about the level of thusness and concepts, and this is another way to express that. In the teachings, there are said to be these ultimate constituents of experience that have a reality, a limited reality. And the aggregates are among these things that have a true reality, that have a way of being. Other of the constituents that are said to be real in this sense are the four elements of earth, water, fire, and air, which really refer to qualities of body sensations. At first, I thought the Buddha was being a really primitive chemist and saying that this is what makes up matter. But these are the qualities that we feel in our body. The sense bases and their objects are considered true or real. And Nibbana, the unconditioned, is considered to be a reality. But the term human being is just a conventional description of these things taken together. And there is no thing that is a human being. The term human being doesn't point to anything that really exists. And Vajira mentions this analogy of the chariot. This is a classical analogy in the text that's explored in an old text called The Questions of King Melinda. It's kind of an interesting story. There was some interchange between ancient Greece and ancient India. And these Buddha images that we see today, you know, they didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. And we think they were the product of Indian art and culture, but they didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. There was no uh, statuary 500 years before the birth of Christ. And the symbols that were used at the time of the Buddha for him and the teachings were a footprint or a Dharma wheel, an eight-spoked wheel representing the Eightfold Path, or sometimes a footprint with a Dharma wheel in between. And it was only when uh, Indian culture had contact with Greek culture that the Roman Greek style of sculpture came in and we had figures like this. This is a very European thing, even though now it looks really Asian. Well, one of the Greek kings uh, was a king named Menander and went and conquered part of India and lived there sometime after the death of the Buddha. And King Menander was visited by an an enlightened monk named Nagasena. And they had a number of dialogues that got recorded. The name got a little changed over the years, and so the book is called The Questions of King Melinda. But his actual name apparently was Menander, and he was a Greek. 
So Menander was uh, dialoguing with Nagasena, the Arahant, and said, um, who is Nagasena? I see you, bef- you know, before me, I hear your sounds, but who are you really? And he said to Nagasena, are you your form? And Nagasena said, no. Are you your feelings? No. Are you your perceptions? No. Are you your mental formations? No. Are you your consciousness? No. Because all these are only fragments. So he said, well, maybe Nagasena doesn't really exist. And so Nagasena's reply was, King, you're a wealthy man. How did you come here? How did you get here? Did you come on foot or did you come by chariot? And the king said, well, I came by chariot. So Nagasena said, uh, what is this thing you call chariot? Is it the wheels? The king said, no. Is it the axles? No. Is it the pole that attaches to the horse? No. And then he said, is it the sum of all of these? And the king said, not really. And Nagasena said, it's just this way with a human being. We can't really be said to be any of these components. And this is kind of mysterious. We can see why we're not the individual ones, but why aren't we all of them put together? What we see in the description of the chariot is that a chariot is really just these individual pieces, the box, the wheels, the axle, the pole, that are then stuck together in a certain way. And if we unstick them, we no longer have a chariot. In a simple example, we could look at something like a pen. And we'd look at this and we'd say, well, we know that's a pen. But if we start to take it apart, then we have the individual pieces, the barrel and the refill and the cap and so forth. Is this a pen? It's not really, is it? But if we put the pieces back together, then again we have something that we recognize as a pen. So what we call a human being is only these aggregates that are assembled in a certain way and interact in a certain way that give the appearance of one thing, a unity, an organism. But if, I, if you were asked to find the one part of you that human being refers to, there isn't anything like that, is there? So human being is just a concept. And in practice, we want to keep coming back to seeing the reality of our actual experience, which we can describe as the aggregates. That's what's real or true. So in a way, this is seeing a level of emptiness in the human being. Another way that it's sometimes described is selflessness. And I know there are lots of feelings about getting into this uh, concept of selflessness. So if this is really uncomfortable, you know, this might be the time for the earplugs or the tuning out. But I wanted to explain a little about the relationship of selflessness to the aggregates. 
And so what I want to do to get into it is to ask the question, what we mean by this word I or self? Because the Buddha wasn't denying that there are beings, but rather that there's a certain way we use the word I or self that is being negated. So we really need to understand what that is first. The sense I think we have of I is that there's some uh, something to which it refers that was there when we were born, was, has been there all throughout our life, is here in this moment, will be with us the rest of the life until we die, at least, if not longer. That there's some kind of abiding or ongoing, independent part of ourselves that continues through time. Something, it's like we feel that there's something at the core of us that is lasting. That in some ways, you know, I'm the same person who sat in that second grade classroom and learned the fundamentals of arithmetic as the person I am in this moment. There's some sense of the continuing nature of an I that's gone through all those experiences. And we also kind of employ it in this moment. We, We identify it as the one that's watching the breath, as though there's some entity that's separate from the breath that's observing it. Sometimes we talk about it as the owner of the body, you know, as though there's a car registration made out to Guy Armstrong at this body is registered to. That it's the one who hears sounds. There's a hearer of sounds in it. This is the piece that the Buddha was negating. That there's some kind of unchanging core at the center of us that is the owner, that is the observer, that is the onlooker that's separate from our experience. He wasn't denying our individuality. It's really clear that on a certain level of understanding, there are individual beings, that we all feel different things, we perceive differently, we act differently, uh, we obviously take up different space with our body. So that level of individuality isn't being denied or uh, discounted. You know, one way of thinking about that is that each of us is a complete mind stream, a stream of mind and body. And that stream, you might say, has a continuity over time. But the individual components of body and mind stream are changing. And that this stream of body and mind is a little different than that stream or that stream or that stream of body and mind. You know, one way to understand this is when the Buddha got enlightened, it solved his problem but it didn't solve ours. So sometimes you hear this view in spirituality that all is one. But if all is one, I would expect the Buddha's enlightenment would have taken care of this mind stream also. So there's a level of individuality that's, that's true that we don't really question. But within that individual stream, the Buddha questioned whether there's any kind of solid core that's unchanging. So the question then is, given this stream 
the experience of the aggregates, how is it that we build a sense of self? How does it come into being? One of the core ways that we do it is that we take the body to be self. We take the body to be I, or we take the body to be mine. I don't know if you remember, but when the Buddha uh, attained his understanding under the Bodhi tree uh, near the town of Gaia, he almost didn't teach. It said that he, he just abided in the bliss of freedom for seven weeks after his awakening. And he thought about not teaching. He said, nobody's going to get it. What I have discovered is uh, too subtle, too hard to understand. No one will get it if I go out and proclaim it. So he almost didn't teach. Then he kind of looked over the world and surveyed the world, and he said, well, there are some beings that don't have a lot of dust in their eyes, so I'll go offer this. But this concern evidently came up for him uh, at a later point, too, because he was talking to Sariputta, who was one of his chief disciples. And he said, you know, Sariputta, whether I teach the Dharma briefly or in detail, those who understand it are hard to find. So you get this sense of a little bit of unfulfillment in his sense of teaching, that it wasn't going quite as easily as maybe he thought it might. And Sariputta replied, Oh, uh, blessed one, now is the time for it. Teach the Dharma briefly or at length, and there will be those who understand. Because at least Sariputta understood. He was considered to be the Buddha's equivalent in wisdom. So the Buddha said, Well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. This is a pretty powerful statement. Basically, as long as we believe that we are the body, we're subject to the fear of death because we know that the body comes to an end. And if our identity is tied with it, then there's the fear, oh, I also come to an end. Ajahn Buddhadasa was a great Thai meditation master, one of the greatest Thai monks of the last half century. He died a few years ago. He lived uh, very simply out in nature. Most of his uh, life was spent in a forest monastery in the south of Thailand that had been given to him when he was a young monk. And it still exists today. It's called Wat Swan Mok. For those of you who visit Thailand, it's a wonderful place to visit because you get the flavor of what living simply in the woods as a practitioner is like in Asia. It's a really, uh, it has a wonderful feeling, and it has a lot of his spirit there. He was a very radical teacher for a traditional uh, Buddhist country. He wouldn't allow any images of the Buddha on the property. So people always kept wanting to donate these things these statues of the Buddha, and he wouldn't have it. He didn't want people to get involved in the kind of ritual and devotion that statues sometimes lead to for people. So all that there was when, um, when we were monks, we would sit there in a big semicircle uh, for the morning meal, 
And in the center of the semicircle, there were three uh, big rocks piled one on top of another, of decreasing in size. And those were as close as you could get to the image of a Buddha at Wat Swan Mok. So he was very radical. He was very much on the wisdom side of things. Living in nature, he felt that you could just uh, abide in a quiet life and the qualities of nature would just sink into your bones, sink into your marrow as you led a simple meditative life. And that you could learn a great deal from the trees, from the forest, from the creatures, from the weather, from the clouds, and so on. And what he said about uh, the learning was he said that you came to understand that this body came from nature. It just came from the joining together of the seeds from our parents, the sperm and the egg, just a physical joining. And then the body was nourished by nutriments over the course of our life, food and water and air, and grew up. And it still belongs to nature. It doesn't actually belong to us. It's never belonged to us. The body belongs to nature. It came from nature. Give it back to nature. He said, and when we do, there's a tremendous relief in that. And this is a matter for insight for seeing that the body has never departed from nature. So we don't have to feel the burden of ownership. So this is the self in relation to form. In relation to feeling, I think we talked about uh, that in the meditation instructions. I won't spend more time on that. In relation to perception, I'd like to talk a little bit about the arising of self in relation to perception. It's very interesting. Perception is one of the most powerful and most underrated faculties in our being. It is the um, faculty of insight, essentially. The deepest insights come not from seeing different things, but from seeing the same things differently. And some of you this week have been reporting on seeing clearly the arising and passing that is the insight into impermanence. We all sit down and we can tell that body sensations are coming and going and thoughts are coming and going, moods are coming and going, sounds, breath, everything's coming and going. But sometimes there's the very clear perception of that coming and going, of that arising and passing. It's not that we see anything differently, but we see that same constellation in a different way and we know really in our gut All the facets of my experience are simply arising and passing. That's the power of perception. Perception colors our fundamental take on the moment. It comes up again and again in daily life and in retreat. I don't know if you were aware of this. I heard this story this summer. John Kabat-Zinn, who began the mindfulness-based stress reduction program at UMass Worcester, has started to offer the practice in the military. And I guess they'd heard about the successes in coping with pain and increased clarity and so on. So those, um, those instructions are going out into the military right now. I happen to mention this to Christopher Titmus, who is a very devoted um, member of the Green Party and very active politically. And his first question was, are they being taught the precepts? Which 
is a very interesting point because one could simply use the practice to become more efficient warriors. But I don't know the answer to that. So one of the stories that um, John Kabat-Zinn came back with was that there was an officer, a military officer, who was living on a base and shopping at the, um, at the PX, the grocery store at the PX. And he was in the, the line, and there, there was a woman cashier who was checking people out of the line. An older woman came through the line holding a baby and reached the cashier, and the cashier rang up the purchase. And the man was getting a little impatient, but the woman with the baby started talking to the cashier handed the baby over, so the cashier held it and admired it and kind of cooed over it, and they talked back and forth for some time, and the officer sort of sitting there, you know, tapping his feet, what's going on, I don't have all day, getting impatient, frustrated, and resentful. And finally, the cashier handed the baby back to the older woman who left and went on her way. But he had heard some trainings about watch your mind, don't jump to the first reaction that comes. And so he was trying to be a little bit aware of his resentment and reactivity. And when he got to the cashier himself, he struck up a conversation and said, uh, nice baby. And the cashier said, um, it's my baby. She said, uh, my husband was an Air Force officer and killed in a training mission just a few months ago. So I've had to find a job to support my children. And I took this job. The woman who uh, was here is my mother. And she looks after uh, my baby during the day and comes in a few times just so that I can have these few moments of contact with my baby. The man's whole relationship to the situation changed from reactivity to concern and compassion, all based on that shift in perception from seeing strangers to seeing a mother and a child. We often perceive ourselves as unlovable or unlovely, you might say. And that's really a deluded misperception. That's a flaw. Because we are all worthy of love. Every human being is worthy of love. But we forget that. There's this beautiful poem by Galway Cannell that expresses it. You may be familiar with it. I think one of the functions of art is to shift our perception of the world and show us where we're mistaken or what we've forgotten. This is called St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely. It is lovely. Until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of the earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart 
to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Perceptions can change in a moment. When I was on retreat this fall in Massachusetts, the chipmunks were really active. It was the start of uh, the fall season. The leaves were turning colors and falling, and the chipmunks were scurrying around all over the place, storing up food for the winter. And then the maple, uh, the maple started to reach their maturity and let down those little propellers with the little maple seed in the middle, and the chipmunks really seemed to love those. They'd go scrambling around, and they were all over the place. We saw lots of chipmunks, and they're, you know, they're very cute. I mean, they're much cuter than squirrels, actually. They, they, can, they can just hop so quickly and so high. They look like cartoon characters. So I got very fond of the chipmunks. Being on retreat, you know, you get kind of mushy. <laughs> and I got very mushy about uh, these chipmunks. I would sometimes take, in the evening, sometimes they'd put sunflower seeds or peanuts out along with tea, so I'd sneak a little handful and go put them out for the chipmunks so they'd get them the next day. And then walking along the road one day, doing a mindful walk, and there was a dead chipmunk on the road. And it, um, it hadn't been run over. So it was, in, it was basically in good form still. And seeing, you know, seeing it there dead, it really, it really touched me. It really moved me because I started wondering um, what family had it been trying to go back to when it died on the road? What were its connections? What were the beings that uh, missed it, that noticed its absence? How did it feel at that moment of, of dying? It was very tender. And the thing that really got me was the size of its ear. Its ear was so tiny, it was only about a quarter of an inch long. It was kind of grayish pink. And I realized in seeing the ear that the chipmunk had all the same senses that we do. It was so tiny, and yet within that body that was only about six inches long were all the same aggregates that we have. And it had its life of pleasure and pain and fear and love of life, just like we did. It was a very moving uh, perception. A few days later, I was walking along a gravel path, and 15 feet ahead of me was a little crumpled form on the ground, And I thought, oh no, not another dead chipmunk. And then I looked at it a little closer, and then I said, is that a dead chipmunk, or is it a pile of leaves? And I couldn't tell from where I was standing. And so I just stood there and looked at it, and I could see a dead chipmunk, and then my heart, you know, would go into this sadness. And then I'd go, no, it's just a pile of leaves. And then it would just all be very neutral. And it was the same sense data. And I could see it two different ways, and my feeling was completely different. And then I walked up, and it was a pile of dead leaves. So that was much easier. But we can go through those shifts in perception in just a moment. Do you remember that old song, Silhouettes on the Shade? When a guy's walking around uh, his girlfriend's block, and he's going up to knock on her front door, and there's a light on in the living room, and two people are kissing very closely and passionately in front of the light and their shadows are cast on the window. And he gets so despondent. My girlfriend is in love with another man. 
And that perception is so strong. And then he realizes it's the wrong house, and it's not his girlfriend, and then he goes over and kisses his girlfriend. So, that shift of perception is like heaven and hell sometimes. In our practice, sometimes we see the glass half empty, sometimes we see the glass half full. We can look at a moment of experience in our meditation and say, this is a bad moment. I can't accept this. This is painful. Or in a, in a millisecond, we can switch and say, oh, this is okay. There's some discomfort here. There's a little pain in my body, but um, my mind's not too unbalanced, and lunchtime's not very far off. Uh, I think I can hang on through this, and it really becomes acceptable. So that's a very interesting thing to look at. The Buddha said that a good practitioner can see the beautiful in a moment of unbeauty, if he or she wishes, or the practitioner can see the unbeautiful in a moment of beauty, if he or she wishes. And the reason for seeing them different ways is if we're caught in desire, then it's more skillful to see what's not so beautiful, to cut through the wanting. Or if we're caught in aversion, it's more skillful to see the beautiful, so we're not caught in hatred. The fourth of the uh, aggregates are the sankharas, the formations, the uh, mental formations, sometimes called the karmic formations. These are the expressions of thought and emotion and image that usually express something uh, with a sense of will. You know, the reason that we don't feel peace all the time is that urges come in of wanting or not wanting that keep the mind in motion. We're kind of bombarded by thoughts that express our likes and dislikes and our hopes and fears. And the mind doesn't feel peace often because of the impingement of these thoughts. This is what keeps us kind of stirred up. Well, these are also a way in which we really feel kind of, I, I think, I feel, in my experience, I really feel comfortable in the sense of myself being there. I get very used to my own particular patterns. And I, I'm, a, I'm a fear type, as personality types go. So I'm very kind of used to a thread of anxiety being present. And some, you know, some complaining. And then, you know, then I, if that's going on, I sort of, oh, I'm really here now. It gets kind of reassuring. And sometimes when that isn't there and I feel like I'm not here, I sort of wonder where I am or, you know, what is going on. So there are a few things to see with this. One is that we can hold on to a sense of self just through familiarity with these things. But the truth is that if we watch closely, these things also pass. Suzuki Roshi had this beautiful line which um, explains why mindfulness is so potent for dealing with the afflictive emotions. He said, those who know the state of emptiness will always be able to dissolve their problems through constancy. If you know the state of emptiness, you can always dissolve your problems. Because you simply are patient and stay in the present until that particular mood or fear or anger or wanting or sense of hopelessness or despair or self-judgment passes away. 
which it will in time. And then you return to this state of balance and openness where nothing is really dominating. And that's true because the sankharas are basically these uh, formations that occur temporarily and unexpectedly, as Sylvia said in the talk last night. These two useful words. If you forget all the rest of your dharma, (laughs) you know you can remember these very useful words. This is actually, I think, the thing that brought me into practice. When I uh, did my first meditation retreat, it was 1976, and I did a retreat at Lama Foundation with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg. And I became totally hooked after that 10-day experience. And when I look back on what hooked me into the practice, what it was was feeling the sense of emptiness and feeling that it had the potency to uproot my suffering. And the particular suffering I was caught in right right at that time in my life was a kind of fear and confusion. I'd sort of emerged out of the 60s as one of the walking wounded with too much of everything that the 60s was famous for. And when I found meditation, I felt that it was the one place where I could, I could see that emptiness and I could see the potential for anything being uprooted through the power of that openness. This is one of the real healing properties of awareness, that it has the ability to unstick anywhere we feel stuck, anything at all, to reach back to that state of openness. So on the level of the emotions um, included within the sankharas, they're also temporary, they're passing and transient, and yet they provide a comfortable sense of who we are. If we look closely, we can see that that passes too. But one of the last refuges, you might say, of the self, one of the last, the ego's last stand, you might say, is in the realm of thought. Even as we get really still in our meditation, and we may be connecting well with the breath, connecting well with sounds, with sensations, very firmly present in the moment, there can be this ongoing line of subconscious chatter. Oh, I see what's happening now. Now I'm going to stay with the breath for a while. Oh, I got a few of those, and then I spaced out for a while. Okay, that wasn't very good, but I'm going to come back. Now what I'm going to pay attention to is sounds, because I feel I was too tight and I need some spaciousness. We can keep this running commentary up even as we're connecting clearly to the focus of the meditation. And in this running commentary, we reestablish the sense of the separate observer. We create, as it were, this sense of observer by these thoughts that haven't been clearly looked into. So this is one reason that we offer the awareness of thought as an important part of the practice. When we become aware of the thoughts coming and going, then we undercut one more place where the sense of self tends to take a stand, even in very subtle and, uh, and good periods of meditation. So that's a useful thing to do, is to be clear that the thoughts are also coming and going. One place you can get in touch with that is start to observe the nature of your experience in between thoughts. The time when one thought has ended and before the next thought has arisen, what's the quality of that moment like? That's a moment that's a little bit freer 
of this grip of self. And finally, the last of the aggregates is consciousness. This is more complicated. And for, for, for now, I'm just going to stick with the definition the Buddha used of consciousness, which is that it was the knowing that arose in relation to a sense experience, to a sound, to a touch, a smell, a taste, a thought, or whatever. And when that sense experience went, the consciousness passed with it. So in that sense, consciousness is also arising and passing. Yet, what many people come and report in interviews is that at times when the meditation is steady, when there's a sense of stillness and a sense of spaciousness, they feel there's a kind of presence there that's stable and ongoing. They feel that there's a quality to the awareness that isn't characterized by this coming and going. Is that consciousness or is that something else? There's a sense that all the mental components, all the physical components are coming and going, except this awareness seems kind of steady. So what's that about? Okay, that's another talk. (laughs) I want to mostly avoid that tonight because it's a big question. I'm going to come back and touch on it briefly at the end. For right now, I'll just say that it's a little, I'll say consciousness has a little bit of a dual nature, a dual character. We can see the ways in which it's just conditioned and subject to arising and passing. We can also, from another angle, see that it has a quality of ongoingness. And we'll come back to that before we finish. So we see that all these components of the aggregates are just arising and passing, moment after moment. In each moment, they come and they go. So how does the sense of self get generated? Well, it gets generated out of a certain speed of these things happening. You know, the five aggregates can all arise so quickly. A knee pain comes in. You're sitting, you're clearly with the breath. A knee, what we call knee pain, comes in. By the way, that's a concept because knee is a concept. But you notice that there's this physical sensation arising about here. And you might notice the first thing is this um, sharp sharp sensation. So that's the manifestation of the form aggregate and also the consciousness aggregate that knows that experience. So form and consciousness are there right in that moment. Then you might note there's an unpleasant feeling with it. And you might note painful. That's the feeling tone, the second aggregate. Then there may uh, well be a perception pain or stabbing. That's the third aggregate. And then you might start to feel, oh, my knee hurts. You might, that thought might arise, my knee hurts. That's sankara, that's the fourth aggregate. Well, it's in that leap, my knee hurts, that the self is getting formed again. There's the ownership of that experience. Now, if we simply left it with stabbing, stabbing, then the self is not being brought into creation again. But when we call it my knee, all of a sudden, out of those bare aggregates, the eye has come into being. So that's actually the moment of birth. The eye has taken a birth at that moment. You are the owner of a bad knee. Congratulations. So fortunately, birth also leads to passing away. At the end of the sitting, you get up, and that owner of the bad knee has gone away. 
great. Can walk, it's comfortable again. Phew, that death was a relief. Some deaths are not so nice. You're sitting in this really lovely, quiet space. I'm having a great sitting. So you become, you take birth as a good meditator. And with that, there's a feeling of satisfaction, of fulfillment, of accomplishment, of contentment. You get up and walk out. Maybe the walking meditation isn't so settled. Maybe the next sitting isn't so settled. Oh, that self dies. The good meditator dies. And that's sad. That's hard. It's hard to let go of that. So in this constantly taking birth and passing away, there's joy and there's sorrow bound up in this process. So the formation of I happens again and again in relation to the aggregates. So an interesting question to ask is, does the I ever arise without being tied to one of the aggregates? Does the sense of I ever come into being purely on its own? Can it stand alone? Can the I stand alone? Or is it only defined in relation to an experience among the aggregates? It's an interesting thing to investigate, so I'll leave that with you to take up. But you can see how over and over we form these conclusions, simple conclusions. I see a chair. I feel happy. I am a bad person. I am lovable. I'm feeling uh, excited. All the different ways that we put the label of I on our experience. The Buddha was asked once, how does belief in a self come to be? How does this happen over and over that we form this view of the self? And he explained it in terms of the aggregates and said that an untaught ordinary person, it's basically us, an untaught ordinary person regards form as self, primarily this body. So that's the sense, I am the body or self as possessing form, this is my body, or form as in self, that is the body is a part of me, I'm bigger than the body, but the body's a piece of it, or self as in form, I dwell within the body. So these are the four options, form as self, self as owning form, form as in self, or self as in form. Then he goes through the same four formulations with regard to the other four aggregates, the mental aggregates. So he spells out 20 ways that the sense of self gets created. It's an interesting thing to reflect on. I think it pretty well covers the territory. All these things, the name we can give to this whole process is identification. Identification is the labeling of I or mine on an aspect of our experience. What the Buddha said is that that I and mine is not intrinsic to the experience. But we give the label, and in giving the label, when we believe in it, we create that sense of self, moment after moment. So the self is not an ongoing thing in any way, shape, or form, but it's something that we ourselves generate, moment after moment after moment. That's why in Buddhism sometimes the goal is stated as the destroying of the ego, but that's completely false. As Wei Wu Wei pointed out, um, that's all well and good. Uh, Catch the ego and cook its goose, but first you have to find it. 
And that's the problem, because there isn't really one. It's just this transient sense that comes and goes. So nor are the aggregates altogether a self either. And that's something that's difficult to grasp. It's just a conventional term that we give to the, to the joining. The way that all the pieces are put together, we give the term human being, but that term human being doesn't actually point to anything that has its own existence. Just like pen is nothing more than a collection of the pieces of the pen. This sounds theoretical, but what I want to say is that when we actually see in this way, it transforms our whole relationship to the world. I don't see this way all the time, but I see this way some of the time. And when I see this way, it's tremendously freeing. When I see that there's no separate core to this life process, that this life process is one of constant flux, there's a tremendous sense of freedom and ease that comes in. And something else that happens that's really interesting, this shocked me the first few times I saw it, is when I see myself that way, I also see other people that way. Most of the time I walk about and I see personalities, especially with people that I know. I look at James and I know, oh, that's, that's my friend James. I know many things about him. He has a great heart. I have a lot of affection for him. I sort of crystallize him into something that I take for granted. But when I can uh, see on the level of clearer seeing, I just see this impersonal process going on for all of us, all beings that I turn my attention to. And there's a very uh, deep sense of freedom in that. And also what gets strengthened is our sense of connectedness. Connectedness doesn't even say it right. It's dropping down to the level where we actually are the same being. Or you could even say we're different, um, we're just different limbs of the same being. We're connected somewhere down here, but we poke up as different fingers. But we're joined at the base. What I find so inspiring about that is that the whole purpose of practice then becomes not just eliminating the obscurations in seeing in this mind, mind and body stream, but the whole game becomes to eliminate the obscurations to awareness wherever awareness is found. And it becomes the same game. This really opens our practice out to take in all of life so that our practice just spontaneously starts to include practicing for the liberation of all beings everywhere. Not as a theoretical thing, but as a felt sense. Because we see that we are all the same. Another aspect of seeing on this level is expressed in an ancient text, a classical text called the Vasudhimaga, where it says, there is no doer of a deed. There is no one who reaps the fruit of a deed. Empty phenomena roll on. This view alone is right and true. There is suffering 
but there is no one who suffers. There is freedom, but there is no one who is freed. And seeing in this way, there is suffering, but there is no one who suffers. There is freedom, but there is no one to be freed. In many of the Mahayana texts, you actually read statements such as, there are no such things as beings, as separate individual beings. Somehow this sounds cold and off-putting, but the actual felt sense of it is one of great compassion. Because we see that we suffer because we all take up the belief in a personality or the belief in a self. Because of it, we have to protect it and defend it and nurture it. And in that, there's a struggle that doesn't need to be there. We've added something on top of our experience that doesn't need to be there. I had a clear pointing out of this uh, when I was a monk. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a whole section that deals with contemplations in cemeteries and charnel grounds, contemplations of dead and decaying bodies. The idea is that the meditator looks at what's happening to other bodies and then imagines what will happen to her or his own body. In most of the world today, you can't find a charnel ground. It's considered unhygienic. So the modern equivalent in Thailand is the autopsy room. And as monks or nuns in Thailand, uh, we're able to go and view autopsies. So I did that a couple of times and stayed in the room for a couple of hours each time. I was about uh, 34 years old. I'd never been next to a dead body in my life. So that was a complete shock for me. So I not only got to stand next to corpses, but I got to watch them being uh, taken apart. I got to watch the bodies being dissected. And they, they do quite a thorough job. I'm only going to do the PG-rated version of the talk tonight, but there is an R-rated version that is quite unsettling. Um, I won't do that tonight. So watching the bodies being taken apart for a couple of hours, and I'd been sitting quite a bit. I was in a monastery in the city kind of waiting for my visa to come through. I'd been doing probably six hours of, of practice a day, and I walked out... Uh, of their feeling quite sensitive. I felt that the experience had made a very strong impact on me. I walked out into the street. The hospital was near the parade ground, the Sanam Luang in Bangkok, which is a very busy part of town, the central part of downtown. Lots of people lined up waiting for buses, kids uh, playing in the park, couples holding hands and walking down the street, young people, old people, middle-aged people. And as I came out and I looked at people, all I could see were walking corpses. That's all that I saw. And I was fascinated. I just kept watching. And it stayed with me for, for I don't know, half an hour, an hour, something like that. Then I reflected later, what did I mean by seeing walking corpses? What was that insight? And what it was, the felt sense of it was that there were bodies which were no different than the bodies I had just seen taken apart on the autopsy table. But these bodies were different. These bodies were animated, and out from the eyes shone this brightness. These bodies had a brightness that the other bodies hadn't. And this brightness was something to do with consciousness. So the consciousness was still there. And that consciousness, I realized, was not anything to do with time. 
This brightness was just purely in the present moment. It abided only in the present moment. It had nothing to do with past or future. It was just here and now. It had the capacity to receive sense impressions through the doors, the five doors of the physical senses through the mind. Through that capacity to receive impressions and this peculiar quality of memory, the brightness constructed a history and it projected that history into the future. And out of those dual constructions, it created the sense of a self, a personality that was ongoing over time. When in truth, there was only this extraordinary brightness purely in the present moment. Until we see through that construction of past and future, out of the present moment materials, we're bound in the delusion that something continues over time. We're bound in the delusion of an ongoing personality. What we are more fundamentally is the space in which everything arises and passes. This is the way of freedom. If there were only the aggregates, then we'd be bound on this wheel of arising and passing, of taking birth in new forms and dying. But the Buddha pointed to a liberation just basically through the qualities of wisdom and awareness. This is the way forward, the way to freedom. From Ajahn Mahabua. Although all phenomena without exception fall under the laws of the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and not-self, the true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that lies beyond disintegration. We could say that this is a substratum of awareness that's a dimension of our being that illuminates everything that arises but is itself empty. Because of this empty awareness, everything in the universe is accommodated. Everything is allowed its being of arising and passing. And yet, this empty awareness abides with the quality of knowing. What we are most fundamentally is this empty space, which has the knowing property. This is our deepest nature. This is what's sometimes referred to as our Buddha nature. It is lasting. It is not subject to arising and passing. But it's ungraspable. We can't identify it as a separate thing because it's the context within which everything takes existence. So it itself is beyond existence and non-existence. This nature is, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't partake of time. So you could, one way of saying is that it has always been, it is now, and it will always be. But it itself is beyond change. It's beyond coming and going and it's beyond birth and death. The Buddha taught that when we take our being in that dimension, then we are beyond the draw of death. Then we abide in the deathless, and this is the end of suffering. So let's sit for just a minute.
This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on December 1, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.